Welcome to HMH Learning Moments. I'm Annalie, and I'm excited to share today's episode of Teachers in America, which is our season one finale for this series. We're joined by Rodney Robinson, the 2019 National Teacher of the Year and the 2019 Virginia Teacher of the Year. Rodney is a teaching veteran with nearly two decades of experience. In 2015, in an effort to better understand the school-to-prison pipeline, Rodney started teaching at the Virgie Binford Education Center, a school inside the Richmond Juvenile Detention Center. Now, he uses the knowledge he has gained from his students to develop alternative programs to prevent students from entering the school-to-prison pipeline. Rodney earned a Bachelor of Arts in History from Virginia State University and a Master's in Educational Administration and Supervision from Virginia Commonwealth University. He's been published three times by Yale University and has received numerous awards for his accomplishments in and out of the classroom. He's worked with Pulitzer award-winning author James Foreman on developing curriculum units on race, class, and punishment as a part of the Yale Teachers Institute. And now let's turn it over to our host, educator and learning scientist, Roselle Mitchell, and her conversation with Rodney. So tell me why you decided to become a teacher. I mainly got into um, education to honor my mother. She wanted to become an educator, but she never got the chance to because she was denied an education growing up in um, South, you know, due to poverty and segregation. When she decided to go back to school to get her GED, I was in high school myself and um, she was in night school. And just watching her in that classroom, learning, having fun, helping her other classmates, she was truly a leader in that classroom. She was almost like the teacher, but she was learning herself. Just watching that joy inspired me to want to be like her, to want to put that love of learning into every single person I came across. I love that image of seeing your mother almost become a different person. Being a collaborative student, almost a teacher leader, as she was learning later on in life, is inspiring to adults, not just uh, obviously to you as a child. You've been at Virgie Binford Detention Center for some time now, but I'd love to hear a little bit about what your first impressions were when you first arrived and what you did. And I remember that first day walking in and hearing that gigantic click. When you're in a, a, a jail, those doors are loud and they're heavy. And so that giant click just snapped me into the reality of, hey, this is jail. And then as I walked through, I saw just bare white walls and I got the institutional feel. And I was like, this isn't the school. This is a jail. So my whole point was to just change that feel, change that environment. First thing I did was met with the kids and talked about who were your heroes and what inspired you. And we began to make displays and murals to put up in a building just to create more of a school feel. I asked them some of the places they wanted to go in on, um, around the world, and we researched those places, and we created picture murals. I want your mind to be free. I say they can lock up your body, but they can never lock up your mind. And so I wanted to create the entire building to inspire them to just wonder where you can be and where you can go. Were they surprised by that? Uh, they weren't. Detention staff was. <laughs> 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 Things are very... Uh, institutionalized from their point of view. So it was a fight to get them to understand that this is what's necessary to create a positive environment for a school. We kind of ran into some roadblocks along the way because some of our displays were (laughs) creating reflections on the security cameras. So we had to move some things around and 
But they once they learned and they saw that the kids were starting to smile and to enjoy it a little bit, then they got with the program and they understood, hey, it's about creating a positive environment for the kids. Even though detention is a negative situation, it can still be a positive environment. I would suggest that a lot of teachers who are listening today have never had this experience. Rodney, I've never heard that clink. You've taught in regular high schools for 14 years. How would a day be different at the uh, Virgie Benford Education Center than a regular high school? Um, To start with, every day is different because you don't know who's on your roster. In a comprehensive school, you have the same kids every day. When we come in every day, we may have six or seven new kids. We may have had three or four kids that left from the previous day. So it's a constant rotation of kids in and out. And because of detention rules, we don't know. We don't know when they're leaving and because and who depends on who may get picked up on the street that night. Every morning when we get there, we have approximately 30 minutes to see who's there, to track down their paperwork, to find out what school they were at, what classes they were in, and just sort of to get organized. And I thank goodness we have the best exceptional education teacher, you know, in, in the country, in Keisha Anderson. And she tracks down those records. Usually by 8 o'clock, we usually have all the kids, uh, the kids' IEP, the kids' schedule, and everything we need to keep that kid on track. And the detention center, we're told education is third. Safety is number one, and legal is number two. By safety, it means making sure the kids feel comfortable and that they're in an environment where they aren't going to you know, be scared. And the second part, legal, for example, we can't have two co-defendants in the same class. That sets up our schedule for the day. So when we get our students, we may have a class of 10 kids who may be in seven different subjects. And then on top of that, you may have a kid who's developmentally delayed next to a kid who's in the AP class. That's very difficult. You have to differentiate your instruction constantly and be extremely flexible to accommodate the needs of all students. But one of the things I do is I kind of go back to the old schoolhouse, the whole 19th century schoolhouse where you have multiple kids in the same grade. And so I rely on my older students to help the younger students and so that they can work together so that everyone can be successful. So really, the first step you have to do almost every morning is uh, create a community. Exactly. And, and you have kids that have been there a while and they're your biggest help in creating the community because they set the tone and they help. I often say, you guys are my leaders and they welcome that positive experience, the chance to be a leader in a positive way. So they tend to set the tone with the kids. For example, before the kids come to class, they'll let them know, hey, this is Mr. Robinson. He's really good, but this is what you need to do. The kids come in with the mindset of, okay, the tone has already been set because I've talked to the classroom leaders when we've been on the pod in ourselves. Obviously, you work through building trust. There's no other way that you could reach these students. What does yeah. that look like and how is that different for um, kids who may have convictions and charges or be awaiting trial? Every one of our kids have suffered some sort of traumatic event. And even if they haven't suffered a traumatic event, being in jail is traumatic itself. So what you have to do is just create a positive environment and create a, a positive school feel. You don't just end up in detention. It's a long road 
And part of that road usually starts with a bad school experience. And so I just set them down and we talk about what's your previous school experience been? And we get to know each other and say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to create a great environment for you. We're not going to treat you like your other schools. We're going to give you a chance to be a leader. Everything you say has value in this class. And we're going to put you on a positive road to success. And once they tend to buy into that, especially when they get positive attention, because most of them throughout their school career have only received negative attention. And so when you have a teacher that's saying, hey, what do you want to do? How can I help you? Let's make sure this works for you. It's really a different feel. It kind of throws them off for a minute. They don't know if it's real or it's just a different experience, but they tend to buy in within a couple of days. What sort of backgrounds and traumatic experiences are you helping them with or uh, helping to process through their more unconventional learning? From the academic side, it's just giving them the supports they need because a lot of our kids come in behind on reading levels. So we have a literacy uh, coach who develops a literacy plan for them. And we just work to improve all their overall skills and build the students up. Now, from a social experience, a lot of them are in survival mode on the streets. They come in, some of them are malnourished, some of them homeless, some of them just suffered the trauma of this life in the streets. We just had to say, hey, this is a safe environment. When was the last time you felt completely safe without having to look over your shoulder? When was the last time you got three solid meals throughout the day and had a place to rest your head without worrying about the street life? And so once they get comfortable, let's let's build on this. So now let's focus on getting you academically built up. Let's get you some books that you like to read or books that are on your level that you can read. And so it's just creating that level of comfort. Sometimes it takes a kid two weeks to a month to start to buy in and believe in what we're selling. What we have to do is we just have to remain consistent. And when they try their little tricks to get out of school or to not do work, we just stay constant on them. And eventually, if you set that culture in the classroom, they're going to buy in. And it may take a while. It may, like I said, it may take a day. It may take a month. But they're eventually going to buy in once they see that everyone in that building has their best interests in mind. I read that one of the important lessons that you help them understand is also about their rights and how they can actually understand them both socially and and legally and be able to approach it at the context that they're in with some of that real knowledge and create a path to being an active citizen. Ultimately, most of my students don't don't understand the justice system, especially the juvenile justice system. And so what we do is we try to Well, me personally, I try to teach them all about the system so that they can make better informed choices. I went to Yale as part of the Yale Teachers Institute last year, and I worked with Pulitzer winner James Foreman on creating a 10,000-word curriculum unit on Virginia and the history of prisons and specifically the juvenile justice system. And what we talk about is things such as probation, parole, and start to get them to understand what their situation is. And so that they can make better informed decisions because the majority of them have public defenders. And a lot of times we know how overworked public defenders are. Yeah. And sometimes they may not have the best interest of the kid in mind. And so we try to inform them of every right, every decision that they can make better choices. For example, I had a student, he was offered uh, six months in juvenile detention or 
10 years probation. So he and I had a long discussion over what those two options entailed. You know, six months and it's over with or 10 years hanging over your head of detention. And so once he was able to understand that the system and how it works, he made a decision. I didn't agree with the decision because he chose the 10 years probation, but he was informed. And I I felt okay with it because I knew that he made a a knowledgeable decision. He knew the history. He knew every option, and he chose that option. I'm technically not allowed to give them legal advice according to juvenile justice rules. But as a social studies teacher, if I'm teaching them about their rights, I can do that. And so it's a fine line I have to walk. You know, I'm going to do what's best for the kids. It's them first as well as the safety and the legal issues, right? Um, yes, yes. Sort of... What are your reflections on the year that passed and maybe one or two students where you you really feel that you were able to reach them and um, and make a difference to their lives? I had one student last year who... Um, He was just involved in some gang life and, you know, the street life. And when he came to us, he was in our six-month diversion program, which is a program for students where they can earn home passes, they can get jobs. It's sort of like a uh, community-based program, sort of like their last chance before they go get sentenced to the big jail. And when he came in, he had a love for history. And I remember specifically, we were watching the scene from Saving Private Ryan. And we were talking about the military strategy and the paratroopers. And he said how he always wanted to jump out of airplanes and that he was going to get a job where he jumped out of airplanes. And the rest of the kids were just like, "Okay, well, yeah, yeah, you know, you're talking. Let's see you do it. And he just said, I'm going to do it. And then he not only did he graduate, he was allowed to walk and participate with his graduating class at his comprehensive school, which was a big, proud moment for us because we had never had a student who could graduate and walk with their graduating class. But he came back about two months ago for career day, and he just finished basic training in the Army, and he was on his way to airborne school to learn how to be a paratrooper. Wow. And so he was telling the kids, like, look, I told you all I was going to do it. I did it. And so it was very inspirational to see the kid who was just sitting beside them a couple months ago come back and say, you can change your life. You can do it. I've completely changed mine. I mean, there was no uh, dry eye in the building when he came back and was talking to the kids because we knew his struggle, what he's overcome and what he did. And it was just so inspiring to the rest of the kids. Well, that's a fantastic story because it's not just about you being there to support them through legal challenges or just sort of inspire them not to offend again. It's Mm -hmm. truly putting them on a path to making the right choices uh, to build a better future for themselves. I know at the uh, at your wonderful speech at the National Teacher of the Year Awards Gala, um, you talked about a young woman in your class as well. Due to just circumstances of life, she ended up on the street. Um, she became involved in gang life and um, prostitution at a young age. She resorted to that for survival. And she got charged with a serious assault. And she had to serve juvenile life, which in Virginia means you serve until you're 21 years old. And she really came in just confused young lady. But by the end, she just developed a strong sense of who she was and what she could be. Not only did she graduate, but she thanked us for just everything. And I mean, when she read her speech, once again, one of those moments 
where there wasn't a dry in the building. And she said being locked up actually was a good thing for her because it was a time for her to calm her life down. It was a chance for her to get her education, something she pretty sure she wouldn't have gotten a chance if she was still on the street. And so she's really, I mean, she's she's my heart. She really has overcome a lot. And she's now going on to a think another facility in Virginia, but she's starting to enroll in some community college classes and she really has a plan. And she says, you know, she you're going to hear from her again about the positive things she's doing and she's going to, you know, come back and thank us once she gets out and, and contributing and being a positive member of society. She, I think, is going to feel connected to you for um, the rest of her life, yeah. whatever different yeah. paths she takes. I know you were in, um, you were working in high needs high schools and, and, you know, we talked about the first year of teaching being tough, but most of, most of the research shows that, you know, around year five and six, uh, teachers really get burned out. And that's when we see attrition take hold. You were in high need high schools for 14 years and, and you felt burnt out and then you did this. I mean, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of teachers that can't quite get the calculus of that. It really goes back to my mother and and my college, Virginia State University. They always taught me that you do best where you're needed. And I felt that I was always needed in these schools and that that sense of community that they put into me was always there. I know I've always wanted to work with students who needed me the most. I've done things in the suburbs and in other places, and I really enjoyed my time out there. But I felt those students didn't need me as much as the students in high-need schools. They needed a positive teacher who was going to be there for them regardless, one who was going to push them no matter what obstacles they had in their way. And so I always felt the need to be in a high-need school. When I began to get burned out, I felt I can still work with a high-needs population. I just can't do a 1,000 kids. So I moved to the juvenile detention center where we had 60 kids. Right. And to be honest, sometimes that 60 kids and some of their major issues feels like I'm dealing with a 1,000 kids sure. because <laughs> a lot of them have such you know trauma in their life. And it's really, really hard. How do you take that? How do you uh, absorb that tr- trauma yourself so that you're supporting them and be as empathic as I know you are and not get down and not get overwhelmed. Plain and simple is therapy. We have to remove the stigma about therapy, especially, you know, for African-Americans and particularly African-American men. We need to start looking into therapy to help us cope and deal with some of our issues. And I remember the moment when I realized I needed to go to therapy was there was a case locally where a four-year-old was unfortunately was shot as a bias, innocent bystander yeah. in the shooting. And my, and my wife was telling me about it. And I was like, yeah, that happens. And I was like, wait a minute. That's not a normal human reaction. Right. And that's just because I had internalized so much trauma and bad situations from the students I work with. That was my moment to say, hey, I need to talk to someone yeah. about this and deal with these issues so that I can be there to provide the help for my students. And it was really interesting that one of my students that next day was, he has gotten sentenced to court order therapy and he was upset over it. And so he and I had a long talk about what is court order therapy and his situation. And, and I was trying to say, yeah, you need to go to therapy. You need to take this seriously. 
let's work on this together. I'll make an appointment. If you take yours seriously, I'm going to go and take it seriously myself. So we have to model the behavior we want our kids to have. And he's went to therapy and he's starting to work through some of the issues he had. Wow, that's a, a really important conversation to have been able to have and to try and, I guess, explain that, you know, therapy's not about fixing something or, as you say, it has a stigma, but it's about processing wrongs yes. or experiences in real time to, to feel better. And I, I, I'm not sure that a, a lot of teachers would think that they needed therapy. But when you put it as you did, you are the, the the kind of mufflers, if you like, of so much trauma in the classroom that it, it only makes sense that you would yes. need some processing time and that can't necessarily be your wife or your family. I tell teachers all the time, if you can't be there for your kids, then I mean, be there mentally, then you're not doing them any good. You have to take care of yourself, not only physically, but emotionally and mentally as well to be the best for your students. It's a powerful role model you provide, not only by, you know, being so thoughtful about the curriculum and what uh, students of color and students who've had these legal challenges can do to understand their context, but also how they can um, heal themselves. And as an African-American male teacher, that's got to be something that is is unique. We're on a platform talking about the power of healing through knowledge as well as, uh, you know, healing through sort of self-grounding. Yes. It's, it's really important that I get that message out there because so many of our youth are hurting. And uh, one thing I've discovered is that a lot of our kids are using substances not because it's the cool thing to do. It's because they're dealing with the process and the pain that they've never dealt with. So the substance that they use, whether it's alcohol or drugs, is really an escape mechanism. Yeah. If we can teach ourselves how to cope with these things, then we can stop using these illicit substances and be our better self. That's a great thought. I mean, surely that's what school can be when it's at its best. And what a teacher yeah. can be. This is a bit of a different conversation than is sometimes had in educational corridors around culturally relevant teaching and equity because it's it's very personal. It's very yeah. equitable in the sense that you're as vulnerable with your students as they are with you. Um, yeah. Talk a little bit about um, what you see going on out there. Well, one of the things I often tell people is never make assumptions about your kids. Always get to know them and their interests. A lot of times when people think culturally relevant education, you think teaching Black kids Black history. And yes, that's a part of it, but it's really also getting to know your kids and what they're into and what their interests are. And don't base those interests and beliefs on stereotypes. I often tell the story that, you know, my kids who have charges that range from truancy to attempted murder, their favorite show is Teen Wolf the Series which is one of those cheesy right. teen shows. And you wouldn't normally think that about my kids, but it really is. So you can start to talk to them about things and just find out what they're interested in and what do they care about. And don't make assumptions based on what you think they care about. And that's how I feel is the biggest jumping off point for culturally relevant education. It's taking what the kids know and their experiences 
and building their education on top of that. If you value them and value their experiences, then they're going to value whatever you're, you're teaching. So really, you're talking about two really important things that obviously you have that you promote for teachers, which is uh, curiosity, true curiosity yeah, about yeah. what what's motivating to whatever child is sitting in front of you, and also yes. the power of listening. The best thing you can do as a teacher is listen to your students. Students will tell you what works for them, what doesn't work, what they like, what they don't like. And they'll tell you if you're doing a good or a bad job. You just have to be open and receptive to that criticism. But you also, that starts with creating a culture where there are open lines of communication between you and the student. And that's it. Once you give the student that voice, then they'll begin to take ownership of their own learning. You've just recently been touring the the state, Southwest Virginia, and you've seen some very different kinds of schools. I want to share a couple of the things that you've seen that have, you know, either inspired you or some things that you feel like need to be, uh, you know, brought into focus. Immediately, there's the economic equity. I mean, that, that was amazing to see. For example, we were in Montgomery County, which was, you know, where Virginia Tech is located. And we had students who are in sixth grade who are using STEM bots to grow and plant agriculture in their classroom, which was just amazing. (laughs) And just to put a generational twist on this, the hardest part for them when they were explaining to me how they did it was actually measuring where the plants would be (laughs) needed to go for the robots. It wasn't programming the robots. It was actually getting getting a ruler. It took us like eight hours to do that. And I was like, how long did it take you to program a robot? He was like, uh, like a minute, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but that was hilarious. But then we went to one county over where they didn't even have textbooks. And so it was like, how do we leave this school, which has all this 21st century technology, and come to this school right to next county over? that doesn't have textbooks. It was pretty eye-opening. And then the cultural inequities. We went to a school that had an African-American principal, yet students were walking around with Confederate T-shirts, Confederate flag, belt buckles. That was a little odd. What did you say? Did you you say anything? Actually, I didn't, but Superintendent Lane spoke on it. He spoke to their, their superintendent of that school system and said, that's not something you should allow to happen. I was really impressed that he spoke up on a lot of cultural inequities that he saw. And even, I think I saw one black male teacher my entire time that was in Pulaski County, Virginia. And and we went to like 10 schools in 10 different counties in Virginia. And it was just eye-opening seeing those inequities take place. One common thing I noticed that if they have a college in their town, then there's usually a lot more <laughs> economic resources for the school. But those counties in Southwest Virginia that didn't have a college tended to struggle a lot. Yeah. What do you think could attract more African-American males into the profession of teaching? Uh, it simply starts in the classroom. We need to create better experiences for them. I often say there's not a coincidence that we lack people of color and um, in education, and we lack teachers who teach exceptional education. But if you look at it, those are the two groups that have the worst experiences in yeah. school. No one wants to come back to the scene of their trauma. Yeah. 
we need to start creating better experiences for those students in schools so that they can see education as teaching as a viable career option, not as something where they don't feel welcome. You have a student who is going into teaching, right? I, I have actually 15 or 16. Well, Deron Battle and Hubert Anderson, they teach um, elementary education, which is really important because the studies show that a Black student who has a Black teacher in elementary school is 39% less likely to drop out of high school and 19% more likely to go to college. So that's one factor. The second thing is the fact that they're back in the schools that they attended as kids because they saw a need for African-American male role models in their school. And they're teaching exceptional ed. And then on top of that, they started a program to mentor that paired teachers with students and community members to mentor, to take the kids out, to expose them to different things. And not only did that program start off doing well, the city has picked up on it and now it's starting to spread the program across the city. And we now have politicians, even the mayor has a mentee in that program. I'm really proud of them for what they're doing in their neighborhood. They're seeing the problem and they're committed to making the change and making the difference. It's, I love that you you began with the idea that the most simple thing to do for you know equity-based teaching or culturally relevant teaching is get to know your kids. Because I, I think a lot of white teachers, and I mean, we know 76% of um, educators are white women, don't always yes. know how to have the conversation or a conversation or what that yes. looks like. What do you tell someone if, if they imply that or they say that or they ask you directly? The key I always tell is just to be vulnerable and talk about yourself. Once they get a sense of who you are and where you come from, then they'll feel more open to you. They'll start telling you things. And you just have to listen without judgment. A lot of times when kids talk about their experiences, as adults, we tend to be like, what? You're doing this? We need to start listening without that judgment and letting them express themselves. And once they feel they can trust you, that's the starting point for building that relationship and building their academic abilities, because it's that old cliche. They don't care how much you know until you they know how much yeah. you care. It starts with just a simple conversation and being vulnerable and not judging the students. I don't think people start off wanting to be judgmental. Uh, you know, I think yeah. feeling that they should be doing something as teachers or they should be disciplining or they um, should be disapproving yeah. it or their own moral framework is somehow yeah. challenged and, and they feel that yeah. that needs to be needs to be imposed. It's a, it's, yes. it's a challenging position as teachers are faced with more and more complexity yes. and massive diversity, um, not just in terms of race or yes. religion um, in, the, in the students that are, that are coming into their classroom. So that ability to be able to listen without judgment and absorb yeah. is, is clearly a, a, a 21st century skill for teachers. Yes, and you must li- listen with empathy, not sympathy. Mm-hmm. A lot of times teachers begin to feel bad for the kids in their situation. No, I can identify and empathize with your situation, but here are the skills we're going to work on to help you overcome the situation. It's not about feeling sorry for them. It's about understanding their situation and teaching them how to overcome There's something that happens in being sympathetic that also reduces your power as a teacher in a way, right? Because you're you're like, I feel so bad, I don't know what to do. And that's not going to be helpful for a kid who's looking to an adult 
um, to perhaps be yes. a different stabilizing influence. So that's a it's a really fine distinction, I think, between sympathy and, and empathy, Rodney. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is the work that you did at Yale. Well, the Yale experience, first of all, the Yale Teachers Institute, I've done it three times. What I like about them is they give you the tools to create lessons and units that are unique to your students and your situation. And that's what I love about it. And it, and it generates student interest. Well, I did a unit on the school, the neighborhood my school was in. And the fact that how it used to be a predominantly upper-class Black neighborhood and how policies of the government kind of destroyed that neighborhood and led to the situation that it's in. And it's, it's very relatable to my students because a lot of the names and the people are people they know, people whose streets are named after in their neighborhood. As long as you get that relevant connection, students will buy in. Yeah, I'm sure that the, the opportunity to create those units was uh, is pretty unique, uh, both to that program, but also a unit like that, pretty unique to your context. So kids know that. They sense that they're not being given a one-size-fits-all experience. Yeah. How does the uh, history of the old African-American schoolhouse um, more specifically influence how you teach? The whole sense of community, getting into a bit of history, was integration kind of hurt some of those the good things of the Black community. One thing about segregation is that there was a strong Black community in the sense of everyone helping one another and we're all in this together. Integration kind of weakened that aspect of the Black community. So my goal is to teach them this is what we were. We can do this again. We just have to do our part. And this is how this works. In my classroom, we help the, uh, the younger kids and, and we give them advice so that they don't make the same mistakes that we made. We don't show them how to be better criminals. We show them how to be better people. And we like to teach them to learn from our mistakes. And then when you go out to the community, I want you to spread that message to the younger people in your community. Hey, this isn't the route that you want to go on. And I can tell you from my experience. And so just building that sense of community and understanding that we're all in this together. And because honestly, the neighborhoods in, in, in Richmond are still somewhat segregated. So let's try to make our neighborhood the best it can. And you can still do those things and build that community in integrated yes. classrooms too. You're not suggesting, okay, yeah. let's go back to segregation, but you're saying where where things no, are no, segregated, no, building... you know, use that community power for good. And then when yes. you're in an integrated context, you can also rebuild that. Yes, exactly. Because a lot of the neighborhoods are going through heavy gentrification. So let's start working with them, the people who are gentrifying our neighborhoods, so that our history isn't lost. And so that we understand that, hey, you are bringing our culture. We're going to adapt your culture to our culture. And we're going to make this a better neighborhood all, all around. One of the happier things I saw was there was a group of um, uh, skateboarders, <laughs> all African-American skateboarders. And that to me, that was a proud moment because that's a sense of community. You took some of the new things that were coming into your neighborhood, but yet you used it to mentor the younger people and you created a little club of skateboarders. That's what I mean by building a sense of community, working with everyone to... To make it make your neighborhood or a better to place. go full circle, what you build every day with your students is a new community because there are new people yeah. coming in and and new challenges yes. and, and new relationships to forge. 
I ask this of everybody and it's, yeah. it's an important question. If you could wave a magic wand and change the lot for teachers uh, or something about the profession, the three and a half million educators, what would that be? That's a good question. If I could, if I could wave the wand, I would definitely make sure that all teachers had the resources that they needed to be successful. By that, I mean technology, emotional support, cultural support, just everything you needed. Because it's easy to point at one thing and say, this is what we need. But the reality is, we need a lot. We need everything that serves the needs of our students. So if I can wave a magic wand, it would be unlimited social, economic, cultural resources to help our students be the best that they can be. That was that was a big wand. Is there something else you'd like to share uh, with our listeners as as part of uh, your call to action on behalf of CCSSO and the National Teacher of the Year program? Clearly, um, because I work in the juvenile detention center, I wanted to bring attention to the um, school to prison pipeline. And one of the big things that's a problem with that is the over-reliance of school resource officers to handle disciplines. I think and in this country, we need to start removing police officers from the discipline as- aspect of schools because a lot of my students, that's where their first encounter with law enforcement takes place, is in the school, and it's usually not a positive one. I think we really need to look at the use of um, school resource officers, police officers in the school environment for handling discipline. You know, whether that's writing your school board, getting a clear memo of understanding on what a police officer is or is not to do in a school. But it's a balance because we want our schools safe. But I don't think having a full-time police officer in the schools makes our schools safe, specifically for our black and brown students. We really need to start looking at examining the use of school resource officers if we really want to tackle the school-to-prison pipeline. Yeah, that's a really important question. I think one that people don't think about very much when they walk into a school building. Often it gives them a sort of sense of security that, oh, there's somebody there, particularly parents, teachers, visitors. But that's probably not true Mm -hmm. for the people Mm -hmm. who are actually... The, uh, the, no. the the people we're serving in schools, which is students. Well, I just appreciate the opportunity to spread my message because a unique, I'm in a unique situation. I represent two groups who don't usually get the microphone in traditional educational conversation. The first of that group is being students who are in jail and have an understand that, hey, this can be a, a life-changing moment if we commit the resources and commit everything that they need to be successful. And the second group is that of black male educators. Black male educators typically don't get the national spotlight to speak on the issues that are affecting them and how they can recruit and advocate for their students on the highest stage. So I'm very happy that I have this stage and I'm proud that you're giving me the opportunity to express my platform. Well, I I couldn't be more proud on behalf of all educators in America that you are this year's National Teacher of the Year, Rodney. Um, I just, it fills me with with, um, so much optimism as you take this message on the road. Well, thank you, Rodney. Thanks so much for spending time with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening and learning with us for season one of HMH Learning Moments, Teachers in America. We owe an extra thanks to our guests, Rachel, Wilson, Amanda, Brittany, Donna, Alexa, Georgette, Garrett, Monica, Tracy, and Rodney, thank you all so much. It is an honor to share your stories. 
And to all our teacher listeners, if you'd like to be featured on a future episode of Teachers in America, please email us at shaped at hmhco.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Stay tuned for future episodes of HMH Learning Moments, including our newest series, Shaping the Future, which debuts this fall. Shaping the Future will be hosted by Dr. David Docterman, better known as Doc, an education lecturer at Harvard, as he talks to both education experts and thought leaders from other industries. Together, they will examine leading issues from across the industry and offer insights for educators to best shape the future of education. In our first episodes of Shaping the Future, you'll hear a conversation about civics education and sparking engagement between Doc and Sylvia Acevedo, CEO of the Girl Scouts and author of Path to the Stars, and Dr. Emma Humphreys, Chief Education Officer at iCivics. And George Anders, Senior Editor-at-Large at LinkedIn, and Dr. Bill Daggett, Founder and Chairman at the International Center for Leadership and Education, Join Doc to talk about job preparedness and the future of the workforce for students as well as educators. Be the first to hear new episodes of HMH Learning Moments by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We hope you enjoyed today's show and will please consider rating and reviewing or sharing with your network. You can join our community and read more on our Shaped blog by visiting hmhco.com shaped. That's hmhco.com slash s-h-a-p-e-d. There, you'll also be able to read blog posts written by the teachers featured on Teachers in America. HMH Learning Moments is produced by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, The Learning Company. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you again next time.